to episode 59 of Great Quarter Guys, the show where the lines between freight and finance are none. I'm your host, Andrew Cox. I've got Seth home with me as well today. We've got a cool show. We're going to talk about drop and hook. Seth and his team have been researching drop and hook strategies. There's been a few implored over the last couple uh, of the last several quarters that we're going to talk about the benefits and trade-offs between them. Before we do that, we've got a full slate of you care or NAS. We've got some fun topics, including Tesla buying Bitcoin, uh, the container store earnings, Peloton. Of course, we can't stop talking about them. They're constantly staying in the news. So let's get to it. Seth. First one, I think it would be criminal for us if we avoided this topic. Uh, it's two of the entities that we talk most about on Great Quarter Guys, that is Tesla and Bitcoin. Everyone's probably heard the news by now, but Tesla has announced that it has bought or is planning to buy $1.5 billion in Bitcoin, and it also plans to accept the digital currency as payment. Seth, you care or not? Uh, I care. I definitely care. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I, I think we've made it known that that we're bullish on bitcoin sometimes i i ask myself why exactly i am but um i think this is a huge catalyst um and perhaps maybe a something that gets a lot of other companies interested in doing the same thing you know it pops into my head maybe a trucking company should buy a little bit of bitcoin and uh turn themselves into a uh into a cult stock it wouldn't be the worst idea as some of those beat up names uh yeah i mean i think it's a huge deal i obviously care about this one they are going straight into the deep end. This has been, you know, t- Elon Musk has talked about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies for a long time. His roots were in payments back when he uh, founded X.com, what would eventually become PayPal. That was one of his first movements. Uh, but he's going to the deep end here. This is 8% or roughly 8% of the company's cash. You know, they've got a lot of cash on hand after raising $10 billion, um, in equity funding in 2020. They've, they've got $19 billion in cash, but this is a significant portion of it, uh, about 7 8%. It's a speculative bet, but it, for me, is a strong move because it's, it proves to Tesla's investors and to Tesla's customers that it's forward-looking. They don't know, we don't know if Bitcoin is going to eventually take over fiat currency. I, I don't have the answer to that. But the idea that it is, for the next 100 years, maybe a viable option uh, seems to be that something Tesla wants to get behind. And there's, there's two things that Tesla really said here, and that's that they're going to accept the payment in Bitcoin and that they're going to use it as an investment vehicle. And that's two really powerful endorsements for Bitcoin as for the notion of a currency, because it's not yet a currency. It is a store of value right now, a very volatile one, but these are two big endorsements that kind of get it towards that next level of being um, both a store of value, an account of a measurement of account and an exchange medium. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, Elon has enough power. He is the wealthiest man or woman on the planet. Uh, there's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy here because, uh, I mean, I think they're already up, what, hundreds of millions on their Bitcoin, um, right? Because it's, they, they shot it up by, I don't know, 20% or so over the past couple of days. So um, I think he has enough power. Now, uh, I think he may have gotten on a little bit of a slippery slope on the, on the regulatory front because um, he was tweeting about Dogecoin and Bitcoin, and he changed his profile at one point to Bitcoin, you know, prior. And so it raises questions, uh, you know, with the SEC and other entities, like, is this kosher to be doing this, engaging in this type of activity? But that aside, uh, I I think it makes sense given Tesla's customers are probably Bitcoin aficionados for the most part and forward-looking. So I think it fits with that. It does, in some ways to me, it it seems a little needlessly risky for, um, for someone who's, you know, on such a winning streak. Um, and, and it is about 7% of their cash. I mean, we all laugh and say, oh, Tesla has 20 billion in cash, but 
this would have been a huge amount of cash uh, given the shape they were in just 12 or 18 months ago. So um, they've come a long way. And uh, like I said, I do think that, um, you know, the bull case for Bitcoin is there's it's got a low float and it's got a limited supply. And when you have these huge, very powerful uh people and organizations endorsing it like that, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I, I think this is going to be a big catalyst for Bitcoin. Yeah, it's definitely going to be a big catalyst. I think the next big one for me that I could see happening, I think I read something on CNBC that there was an inkling that uh, Apple Pay, Apple may get into allowing uh, Bitcoin users to use through it, through its Apple Pay program. That would be even bigger than Tesla buying $1.5 billion for me. You mean for actual payments? Yes, for actual yeah. payments, right. Uh, exactly, because it's 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 a huge. It's not the biggest endeavor for companies to be able to accept Bitcoin. I mean, Home Depot does it, Overstock.com does it, but it would be much easier if Apple just played the intermediary there and, and does it for them. All right, so let's let's move on. I don't want to spend too much time on Tesla and Bitcoin. We've got plenty of else to talk about. So the next one is Target. Uh, Target's Lululemon competitor, which is its proprietary brand, All in Motion. That brand topped one billion in sales in 2020. It just got launched uh, about three months prior to 2020. By the way, uh, Seth, you care or not about All in Motion topping one billion in sales? Uh, I care for sure. And and on, on the shipper side, I mean, Target is just on an amazing run, and um, and and they just continue to do everything right. And uh, you know, I've followed the company for a long time, and, th- and this is nothing new for them. Um, They've done this with what ten other brands. I think the uh, the one that they have this one called Cat and Jack, which uh, I've got two young daughters, and they make like pajamas and stuff like that. They took that to be no joke, a billion dollar uh, in house brand in like under a year, and which is which is amazing because not only does it drive sort of customer loyalty and repeat visits, but it's high margin when they do that, and it and it keeps people coming in the store. So it's just an all-around win-win for them. And um, Brian Cornell, I mean, that just the, the degree they've been executing and growing in terms of e-commerce and making all the right moves from a supply chain and a fulfillment. Um, I honestly, um, you know, now it's a big company. It's got $100 billion in sales, and, and I, I found myself wondering, you know, when – when do companies like Target or Amazon or Costco start to run out of some of that juice in the back half? Because you're, you're talking about a hundred billion dollar companies growing their revenue at 30 mm-hmm. um, percent. So at some point they're going to come up against tough comparisons, but they just continue to make uh, to make all the right moves. Yeah, I agree. I do care about this one. Target is firing on all cylinders. As you said, there are 10 in-house brands that did a billion in sales in 2024, of which did 2 billion in sales. It's just it's just unreal. Uh, the, the formula has just been really good, right? Just lead, look at leading brands, see what they're doing, look at the winners and losers, copy what the winners are doing at a lower price, at a bigger, uh, at a more inclusive range of sizes and inclusive ranges of colors, and then just sell it cheaper. Right. But, uh, you know, one thing I, I would be remiss not to mention is not everyone can do this. Target does have that cachet uh, and sort of brand power uh, that that makes, you know, cheap things appealing. Yes. And okay. a lot of people cannot pull that off. Um, so, you, you, in other words, you feel like you're getting a great deal and you feel like you're getting something just as, you know, maybe it's not Lululemon, but you feel like instead of spending $100 on a pair of yoga pants, if you're spending $30, you are getting a really good bang for your buck and still sort of looking cool at the same time. Yeah, I would agree. I, th- I would say that I noticed this about a, probably in the middle of the summer, I noticed the Walmart here in Chattanooga, the one that I go to, it is, it's completely redone its, uh, its clothing layout. And it feels like a Target when you walk in. It's like they've almost carbon copied the, the white walls with the, the same mannequins, like very similar feel. And it's because they, Target, you're right about that. Target has been able to create a brand and a feel in the store that doesn't feel like you're going to a discounter, so to say. Yeah. And, and, and I, I mean, I, I assume you know, but 
uh, margins on apparel and clothing, particularly in-house brands, can be you know north of 50% for a retailer with a with a five or a 10% operating margin. The more business you can sort of shift to that, not only is it you know it drives that customer uh, traffic, like I was saying, but it's it's huge for margins and profitability as well. Right. All right. Let's uh, let's shift to Family Dollar. So this one's on Family Dollar has tapped Instacart to fulfill its same-day delivery from all 6,000 of its stores. Seth, what do you make of this? Do you care about Family Dollar and Instacart teaming up? I don't. Um, and, I, and I, you know, I've never... Uh, I've, so I've been to the Dollar Trees and I've been to Dollar General. I've never actually been to a Family Dollar. And I do know it's a troubled asset that um, Family Dollar probably wishes they didn't acquire. Um, on, on the other hand, I mean, I, I guess I kind of get why they do it. It's more of a grocery store, similar to how a Dollar General is. Mm-hmm. Although it, it seems to have, it, it seems to me that a lot of times people go into those, maybe not exactly know, like with their list, it's more of like a treasure hunt. And so it's, it's hard for me to imagine exactly um, how that process is going to translate, I guess. In other words, when you, when you go into the Instacart app and, and you do your browsing and you decide what you want to put in your online cart, um, you know, it, it makes more like when you go into a Publix, you know exactly what's on your list and what you normally buy and that sort of thing. It seems a little bit, uh, you know, more frictionless in that model. And it's, it's particularly given these smaller average ticket sizes yep. that you have here, which is why the, a lot of those uh, dollar stores haven't really adopted e-commerce in any major way. Because, I mean, if you've got a $10 basket and you're spending $20 shipping it, uh, it does, economically doesn't make sense. No, I agree. I spent a lot of my younger years with my mother being dragged along uh, pretty much every family store, uh, every family dollar store and, and other dollar discounter stores. And I don't like being in these stores. Like they're very cluttered and they seem to be always messy. They're not well lit. Like it's just not a, a great experience. So I'm, I'm skeptical that there's even enough demand to warrant same day delivery from these stores. But I was thinking that it is actually a decent value prop. If I can get discounted goods delivered to me at the same price that I would have to go into Walmart, if I get all that without having to go into the family dollar store, it's not a bad proposition. Yeah. I mean, listen, I don't think it costs them anything in terms of adding it. I assume this has variable costs associated with it for the most part. So it's probably a, let's test it out. Let's see what kind of, what, what happens. So it's a little bit different than spending, you know, say tens or hundreds of millions, uh, in CapEx investing in your own online infrastructure. This is kind of a lower risk, I assume way to kind of test that out. Yes, I agree. They, they tried it out, I think, at like 600 stores at the back half of the year. They're rolling it out now to all 6,000 here in the front half of the year. All right, so let's shift gears to Peloton. Uh, we're going to talk about them just for a moment. They are investing $100 million in its supply chain. CEO John Foley acknowledged the problems that, uh, and their delays that have now amounted into months rather than weeks. And he says that the company is going to spend $100 million, particularly in the use of air cargo uh, to expedite shipping and alleviate some of that port congestion. Seth, you care or no? Uh, I care for the greater symbolism of this and, and, it, and, and, and you have written extensively about this and, um, and, and they're kind of the poster child and, and they may feel picked on by I think they probably some other do. people at this, net, <laughs> this network and company. But I mean, they are just sort of the most visible company. On the other hand, they're killing it and they're growing, they're growing sales by triple digits and they're doing a really good job on the product side, but they're having some issues with their transportation. And, and, and they're not alone. Um, you know, we continue. I think we're going to talk next about another company that this happened to. And then I can call out another half a dozen um, that, that, I've, that I've come across recently where, um, you know, I mean, transportation costs, uh, those are costs to shippers. Those are revenues to transportation companies, whether it be 
brokers or uh, asset-based carriers. So um, yeah, it matters for our world. Certainly. Yeah. I won't spend too much time on this because I have written on it extensively, but my whole my whole thing is here. I do, I do care uh, about the bigger symbolism and I care about them spending this money because it is necessary. They need to alleviate these congestion. I mean, people are really upset. I had, I had two or three people actually respond to my uh, newsletter yesterday and said, yes, I'm still waiting on my Peloton that are just in my list of 700 people that get the email. So yes, there's well, a lot of people that are upset. Go ahead. Not, well, no, I was just going to say, I actually really wanted a Peloton treadmill, but forget about getting angry. I didn't even sign up to get one because I was like, I'm going to hopefully, you know, fingers crossed, get a vaccine in the next three to six months uh, or hopefully nine months. And I don't want to make a, you know, a two, three, four thousand dollar purchase when I'm just going to go right back to running at the gym uh, after that. Yeah, exactly. That's that's like this hundred million dollars is really indicative of how big the problem is and how uh, how timely this problem is for Peloton. Like they've got to lock in people right now because we've got the vaccines coming. We've got competition spinning out Bowflex, Nautilus, SoulCycle. They've all spun out, uh, you know, similar products in the last year. So their their window of being the only option in town is closing really quickly, and it's a really valuable place to be. I mean, the lifetime value of a Peloton user they estimate it to be thirty five hundred, but that's just based on software. Uh, you know, if you take in the the fact that a lot of Peloton users upgrade, just like Apple users do year after year, I mean, the lifetime value of these customers are much higher than thirty five hundred. Yeah, I think you've hit on a key issue there for both investors and kind of stakeholders in that company. Uh, Some people say that it doesn't matter. It's almost like a badge of honor that they have too much demand. But I I think I'd lean towards your side of the table where uh, where it does matter because you are turning away or angering potential customers that might be lifetime customers. And I think it's also highlighting a bigger issue that I've that I've thought about as I've gotten into the transportation industry is people especially outside of the transportation industry, really just take it for granted, to be honest. And it's only when things screw up do they really notice and and or that they're having to spend a lot more money on it that they start to notice. But this is kind of at the forefront of all that right now. Yeah, perfect perfect technology or the best technology should happen seamlessly. You shouldn't even notice they happen. That's the same thing with transportation. And that a perfect service happens without the customer even noticing it. And they see, they, they associate. That takes a tremendous amount of work. Oh, so much work. I mean, that's the industry that we're in every day. Uh, all right, so let's go on to the company that you uh, were about to mention. That's the Container Store. We're going to talk, uh, they reported Q4 earnings last week. They posted 98% year-over-year online sales growth, but their margin slid double digits. Seth? What do you make of Q4? Do you care or not for the container store? Wow. So their margin slid double digits. I was not aware of that. So yes. literally contracted by more than 10% year over year. Yep. From wow. the down from 57 to 46, I On think. On the gross margin side? Yes. Okay. Well, so that, I, I used to be very familiar with this company. So one thing that investors love about this company is when you're selling uh, plastic drawers for $300 that cost 50 cents to manufacture <laughs> yeah. is a really, really good business. Um, if you can keep that gravy train rolling. Um, so, I mean, it's a big deal. Like, like I said, this is just another example. Uh, and, and, you know, to a greater point, uh, you know, I've been listening to all the earnings calls with all the truckload every across everyone in transportation and nobody sees this going away, at least for, I mean, pretty much unanimously, all the executives at the public companies across trucking and LTL, intermodal, rail, all that, they, they see, uh, you know, the first half staying strong. And then you've got, most people think that these, a lot of these driver issues are secular in nature. And so uh, I think you're only going to see more and more of this. So these retailers, if, if I were running one of these, you know, you need a good supply chain, head of your supply chain that actually 
That's what I, I, if I were a CEO of this company, I'd either hire a really good broker or bring someone in-house who really knows the industry because uh, you can't have this happening forever. Um, because at some point it, it goes from, um, you know, a forgivable excuse to execution issues if it, if it continues to go on. Right. I think this is a, I do care about this one. This is, I think it's a really good use case for what is going on in retail. You have all of these what historically were very dominant physical store locations that have had to pivot online and they're having to do so at a time when carrier capacity is really low uh, or is really tight rather. And these carriers are using surcharges to manage their capacity and it's really straining the bottom line, as we said, double digit uh, margin compression and it's straining the, and they said that they said that three PL surcharges were what was most impactful to them. They were more impactful than they expected. They didn't say which three PL uh, they use, but you got to think about the surcharges we've seen from FedEx and UPS. FedEx said they were the new normal back in July. UPS has imp- implemented Tomei. I can't remember what she called it, but competitive pricing or something yeah. like that, where that's going to be the new standard for, for their customers. So it's not going anywhere. The, the congestion is not going anywhere. Neither of the surcharges on prices, not only on the parcel side, but on the truckload side as well. The CEO had mentioned that they're having, they're getting strained on both sides to get the goods to them and then also to get the goods to the customer. Yeah, I mean, so I think at its most basic level, all the leverage right now sits with the transportation providers and, and, and brokerage uh, people. And so, uh, and, and then if you think about it, especially on the retailer, or the shipper side, you don't want to lose, even if it comes at a lower margin, you don't want to miss out on a sale because of all the stuff we talked about with Peloton, where you don't want to say no to a customer. You'd rather just do it at a larger margin and then hope Wall Street gives you a pass uh, because, because of something out of your control, right? So... Right. Uh, so we had one here on Amazon. We're going to skip it. We were just going to mention that uh, Amazon has ordered more than 1,000 compressed natural gas class six and eight trucks. Uh, the order will be fulfilled by a joint venture between Cummins and Westport Fuel Systems. This is a great move. I mean, we're all we all excited about this. Uh, class eight trucks make up five percent of the total fleet, but make up 20 percent of all gas uh, of all carbon emissions. Re- renewable natural gas is, a, is an incredible way to get us closer towards carbon neutrality. Amazon set their targets on 2040. All right, so let's get to our main conversation of the day. So Seth and his team have been focused on drop and hook recently. So we're going to give a little 101. What is it? Uh, why do people use it? What are the differences between the current system and the next system? And what are the three strategies that are being implemented right now? So Seth, you want to take the lead and just tell me what drop and hook is and why people are using it? Yeah, so I mean, drop and hook, I'm trying to think how to best uh, describe this. It's basically, it's a power-only uh, tractor, right, uh, with, without a trailer and or you can, there's many, there's many different trailer networks, but at its most basic level, you're talking about just a power unit that's yeah. uh, a tractor. And uh, on the shipper side, the reason why you want to do this is because you can load and unload trailers on your own schedule um, and not have those, those, you know, your facility have backlogs of trucks pulling in. And it's particularly good for, for difficult freight to load and unload. That's, a, that's complex, that sort of thing. Uh, and on the driver's side, uh, it, it's fairly obvious the reason why they like it is because it keeps those assets moving and turning and you get paid per mile. And although you do get paid detention time after an hour or whatever, it, you, you, you can make more money and be more efficient uh, with your out, when you're out there on the road and moving and turning trailers. And it's just 
from a lifestyle perspective, it's just a lot. I mean, if you think about it from a driver perspective, not having to sit there and wait for a couple hours for loading and unloading, it's got to be frustrating. So Yeah, um, it's definitely frustrating. I remember we did a survey of drivers last year, and they said dwell time. Dwell time has consistently been, and every driver survey we've done, one of the biggest their biggest problems in the industry. And it's also what carriers say is one of the biggest uh, reasons for driver turnover is people just having to wait two, three, four hours when they get to a dock. Uh, but go ahead. So uh, why, and keep going. Sorry. Well, uh, yeah. Can you imagine doing that in the pre-smartphone era? Though now I would probably just get on my iPhone. Yeah, and, they just and, now watch and, Netflix and go now, but... do whatever. But it must have been much, much worse back in the day. Um, so, uh, you wanted me to talk about keep going in terms of what are the three models? Where are we going next? Uh, sure. Let's do. Uh, let, let's talk about where they're best, and then we'll go into okay. the three models. So we've got a, a map here that we'll show. But Seth, you want to talk about this map from the BTS and and what what the uh, what people are looking at here? Yeah. So uh, at its most basic level, when I was thinking about you know where to place a drop and hook network, it works well in certain areas and with certain types of freight. And if you think about areas, it basically works in freight hubs. Areas with lots and lots of people living there and lots of inbound, outbound freight and lots of congestion and at the same time, lots of trucks moving through there. So, uh, you know, the people that so far have built out uh, drop trailer networks, uh, most notably um, Night Swift, Arrive and um, and Uber Uber Freight, who we're going to talk about. Uh, a lot of them have done it in places. Anyone who's in freight, you, you can imagine where, the, where, where and why they've done this. They've kind of started out in the I-5 corridor, which runs all the way from, I think, Seattle or Vancouver to San Diego. And then the Texas Triangle between, uh, between Dallas, San Antonio, and Houston. So uh, other places, you know, me being from Atlanta, that seems to strike me as a, as a natural place to really place one of these. Uh, because Atlanta usually, I think they're... It varies between number one, number two, and number three in outbound tender market share. You've got seven and a half million people living there. You've got a ton of traffic, and you've got the real estate that's cheap enough to be able to sort of uh, not only be able to park enough trailers to, to be able to actually physically operate, but it's cheap enough to do it and do it at a good margin. But that's that's kind of the overview um, in, in, in terms of where you would put it. But, you know, I would say just in general, top 20 freight markets in the U.S., it's probably and you need and you need good access to highways so that both on the shipper side and on the driver side you can kind of drop it off and keep moving uh, on your backhaul or whatever and keep going. Right, so it makes sense to have them close to the interstate, but also you know to have them in the freight hubs. You want the, that that map, by the way, all of the lines. It probably was a bit confusing. So the green lines were where there was high volume and also high levels of. Uh, High volume, but low levels of trucks, and then you want to see where those great, where those red and yellows are matching together. So the the yellow is high level of trucks and high level of uh, and high level of volume, and the red there is high level of. Thank you for putting it up, guys. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was trying to look at. Uh, and, and so you basically want to put them where the red and the yellows are intersecting. So the, the yellows are big population hubs where there's lots of cars and volume of trucks. And the red is where there is significantly uh, a disproportionate level of high trucks. So you want to right. put them along those lanes. Sorry, that was a right. And, 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 and so to put it in extreme layman's terms, and unsurprisingly, basically your starter markets are, I already mentioned two of them. I mean, it's really L.A., uh, you know, parts of Texas, Atlanta, uh, Elizabeth, New Jersey, Joliet and Chicago, places like that, um, which, which are fairly obvious, tons and tons of trucks and tons and tons of freight moving out of there. And let's try to do it, 
do more of it and turn the assets faster and do it more efficiently. That's the idea. Right. There's another benefit here to the shipper is that you can create a lot more throughput and you can use the trucks as almost temporary storage. Uh, you know, they, once you've got it loaded, it's already out of the dock, it's throughput, it's there, it's ready to be picked up and go. So let's talk about some of the three models. So you mentioned the three, Knight Swift, Arrive, and Uber. Let's start with Knight Swift. This one leverages scale asset ownership, and it has a hybrid business model between asset heavy and asset light. So talk to me a little bit about the Knight Swift model, and uh, then we'll go into the, some of the pros and cons. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is I think this might be my favorite model, at least for Knight. I think it's a really good model, but at the same time, they're pretty much the only ones who can do Capable this model. Of it. Yeah. And the reason why is they've got you know 18 or 20,000 trucks and 60,000 trailers. So if you think about replicating this model and, and you know, sixty thousand. I, I, what is a trailer? Anywhere twenty or thirty thousand dollars, something like that. I would be completely guessing. You can, you can kind of do the math. I think it's I think it's between twenty and forty grand uh, to have sixty thousand of those. You can imagine that's that's billions of dollars uh, just off the top of my head. So, anyways, here's how the night model works. Basically, uh, they own all the trailers, right? And then, so what they do is they use their brokerage to and and a lot of technology to optimally determine. Uh, so, so it's really complex to kind of figure out all the logi- the logistics, no pun intended, of right. how all this is going to work. And so what they do is they use their brokers and they own these trailers and then they, they sign up their customers and, and third-party carriers and they kind of try to figure out that optimal lane and that optimal mix of either their own power or outsource third-party power that they've done through their brokerage to basically uh, be able to flex capacity used for both base demand and also flex capacity and it just works really well and be it has these scale advantages that makes it really hard to replicate yeah and they're doing a lot of this so uh jp hampstead uh the director of passport research and and uh, my boss here at freight waves he wrote an article on this just the other day and he talked about 30 percent of night swift logistics so the brokerage arm 30 percent of their loads uh was it for 2020 all of 2020 were power only loads yeah and and, and even more than that uh that 30 that 30 percent was growing uh almost 90 percent year over year and so Having listened to, like I said, dozens of transportation earnings calls, like this is a popular topic right now. And one and one thing we forgot to mention uh, before we get into the other two models is if you think about how tight of a capacity environment, both high demand and tight capacity, the, the appeal of this model is much more because everybody like on the shipper side, you don't have enough trucks. And then for the little amount of trucks you do have, you're paying through the nose for these trucks. So this and then on the carrier side, Given the rate per mile, you want to keep your trucks moving, maximize those assets, and try to, you know, try to gain every dollar you possibly can. And so, uh, and then, and then the, just the flexibility and the convenience of this model, people really sort of um, treasure that um, on both sides. Yeah, you can see these the trailer orders picked up a lot faster than the truck orders did back, uh, you know, back in the middle of the summer, they started really ramping up. And it, I, I looked at that as these carriers and these logistics companies are, are, I saw it as a drop and hook as one of the big drivers for this. They were trying to make better use of the drivers they did have because the biggest problem right now is drivers. Yeah. So that makes sense, right? Right. So if you have, if you've got a limited pool of drivers, but you can, you know, uh, increase their productivity by a greater than one trailer, um, it, it makes sense why people are going down this road. Right, exactly. So we've only got a couple minutes, so let's just take it very top line. Tell me the differences between Arrive and Uber Freights compared to the Night Swift model. Okay, let's let's see how fast I can do this and as simple as possible. So <laughs> Arrive, uh, Arrive basically doesn't own any of the assets. Right, they just use their brokerage connections and manpower. 
to, to get this network. And not only that, but they focus, they tend to focus on small to medium-sized carriers, really kind of small carriers, between 20 and 100 trucks, right? Those, that's kind of the sweet spot for them because those size carriers tend to actually have a few extra trailers lying around. And then what they do is uh, they take their excess capacity and they, match, and they match them up with shippers that also need the same thing. And they've got all, again, they've got all this technology and people and resources to figure out where that's best served. Um, and then on the Uber side, and we can kind of discuss these really quickly after, but the Uber side is basically a mixture of both. Um, it's where it's, it's, it's heavily concentrated in owner operators mm-hmm. instead of larger fleets like the others. Um, and it's, they lease the trailers. So they have right. these big lease trailer pools and they're doing the same thing, using all the technology to kind of allocate it, uh, as efficiently as possible and try to increase, uh, you know, asset turns for, for everyone involved. Well, let's say, so for the Knight Swift uh, strategy, you need immense scale, something that's very difficult to replicate. For Arrive, you need immense customer relationships, something also pretty difficult to, to uh, replicate. And experience, really. Right. Kind of know-how. Yeah, exactly. And then Uber Freight, um, the, the main thing in them is probably just technology. You think that's probably the best, that's probably their biggest attribute here of their yeah, strategy? Yeah, and you need, a, you need network effects in terms of owner-operators signing up and, um, uh, for the app. Right. So unfortunately, that is all the time we have. We've got to put a wrap to this. Seth, what has your team got going on this week? You guys going to be doing the trucking markets on Friday? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, we already we did the trucking markets report today. We're going to be doing a special topic. Stay tuned because uh, we're, we're still kind of debating internally what that's going to be. But we'll, we'll, we'll be having all our normal stuff. Exciting. So we've got uh, I've got a point of sale coming out on Thursday. Not sure what we're going to write about yet, but you can go sign up for that at freightwaves.com slash POS. The last one that came out just yesterday on Monday, I wrote about the Peloton supply chain and also the container store earnings. So uh, you can find that uh, on freightwaves.com as well. You can find all of our podcast at Freightcast. We can find everything that Freightwaves does if you subscribe to Freightcast wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anything in between. Or you can catch us live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. We'll be back here next Tuesday at 3. See you then.